wonderful time that we can gather together as a family, as a body, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we are missing some members here at our Pastor Bible Church. They're on the retreat, that's what I understand. But we just continue to pray for them that they make their way back safely and that their time together will be just one, just enriching time. And so this morning, as we continue this morning, um, an announcement that's not in your bulletin that I'd like for you to uh, kind of make pay attention to is uh, on the back of your bulletin it says the young adults at El Paso Bible Church uh, will meet in uh, Building B. That that room will be B422. Okay, the time is correct, but you're gonna be meeting in B422 for the young adult the young adults of the uh, today at 6 p.m. All the other announcements are there for your reading and for your praying as well. This morning as we continue to, uh, in our service, uh, if you have a chance to open your Bible to um, Hebrews chapter 12, as I read a couple of passages out of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. And as you can see, we're also going to participate this morning in the Lord's Supper. What a wonderful privilege we have as believers in Christ. Uh, looking at chapter 12, out of Hebrews, I'll be reading verses 9 through 11 this morning. They begin, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peace, peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those key words, trained by it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, we give you thanks and praise for allowing us again to be <clears throat> together, to worship to listen to the message that you have prepared through your servant, Josh. And Father, pray that this morning the word would be uh, also to us enrich, enriching to our hearts. Father, but this morning we just thank you so much because we know we serve a living God, a God that is alive, a God that is powerful, a God that can change lives. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Father, one day, we're looking for that blessed hope, that day when he will return for us. In the meantime, Lord, pray that you help keep us and help us to continue to serve you and be faithful, Father, in all things. And Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your love, for your patience, for your help, for your guidance in all things. And we also ask for your protection on those that are here with us, Lord, that they may come back safely. Uh, to our body for the next meeting that we have. And so this morning, Father, we pray that uh, you just touch our hearts with your message and even with the music, Lord, that prepares our hearts as we sing praises to our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, and we uplift him, Father. So thank you so much for this time together, and I just pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Would you stand with us for a time of worship?
long time running down a dead end road Looking for that something that could fill my soul Mary found what I was searching for It's been a long time running from a messed up past But you can't go forward when you're looking back But I ain't looking back anymore
There in the shadows of this life, your great grace. Sit on the mountain top. There in the everyday and the mundane. There in the sorrow and the dancing, your great grace. Oh, such grace. From the creation to From the cross into eternity, your grace finds me. Yes, your grace finds me. Stay on a wedding day, there in the weeping by the graveside.
Kilter today. We have a good number of our helpmates gone at the moment. Therefore, we are without help. We are helpless, as it were. Uh, but we do have adventurers today. Children, Mrs. Kirby is going to lead adventurers today. So if you're in the adventurers Sunday school class, you can follow her. There she goes. And explorers, y'all are going to be in here as usual uh, for big church on Communion Sunday. I don't know if kids still call it. Uh, Big church, but that's what we called it when I was little, a long time ago, back when I didn't need reading glasses. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray this morning together. We have a lot to, that we ought to pray for, but I particularly want to pray for this violence uh, in Israel this morning. We definitely need to pray for that. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you uh, that the women had the opportunity, those who were able to go, to go on this retreat and to spend time in fellowship with each other and prayer and learning and to grow closer to each other as they uh, learn more about you and simply rest. Uh, and Father, uh, we, we welcome that opportunity. We pray for those in our body who are suffering uh, from illnesses, particularly those who are in process of recovering. And Father, pray that you continue to bless that recovery. Uh, but Father, we, we do this morning uh, embrace the Abrahamic blessing, uh, that those who bless the lineage of Abraham would be blessed. And we align ourselves with that, blessing those this morning. And Father, we pray for quick victory. Uh, we know that the uh, violence requires a violent response, and we pray that it is sufficient and immediate in order to prevent suffering. Uh, we pray that um, the involvement of other nations would be of little effect, but that Israel would prevail over this violence acted out against them. Uh, Father, we know that no nation on the earth is perfect, and there are many who would criticize Israel in this case, but we lean on your promise and your word and know that you will protect your covenant people, the ones who bear your name. We thank you for it. We pray that you bless our time in your word as we begin a study in Second Peter this morning. We pray that you bless it to us and to your glory in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. I dismissed the adventurers, didn't I? I already did that. Big kids don't take offense. I don't know all of what class you go to. So I'm just making sure that we did that because I could forget. I'm missing two very important people in my house right now. The one who milks the goats, right, Micah? The one who milks the goats and the one who makes the coffee. I'm guessing it's your wife and your only You know, that's it. It's my wife and my only favoritist daughter. Those two people I'm missing profoundly this morning, substantially, and I'm sure that I'm not the only one who's in that boat. Right, Hammer? All right, we call Lily the Hammer. 
She's in charge there, all those brothers. Uh, but this morning, we're going to talk about, we're missing a little bit of the title here, it's Growing in Grace, His Power. So we're going to talk about growing in grace. There's nothing like the absence of your wife in my house to teach me how much more I need to grow in grace, right? Uh, so we're learning about that. That's what we're going to be beginning this morning, Second Peter. It follows pretty logically, right? We save a few minutes of time uh, in introductory material because um, of the authorship, right? We don't have to talk about who Peter is, do we? We already did that. You can go back. I don't even remember when I started First Peter, but I know it was recorded, and I know it's there, and you can find it. So if you need to know who Peter is, go back. But I think Peter wrote it. I will warn you uh, that, the, I mean, this book is not anonymous. It starts with the name of the author, Simon Peter, uh, but a lot of people want to cast doubt on the authorship, and I suspect people, when they do that, when they take the 66 canonical books of the Bible and say, I doubt the authorship of that book. The reason I do is because normally they have an ax to grind, and the ax to grind is to create ambiguity as to the authority of the book, right? Because that's one of the ways that, that the church determined um, what God had declared as the canonical word was whether an apostle was the author or somebody closely associated with an apostle. That was one of the primary categories as well as universal, universality. Was it being used by the church, universal? Um, and so they're trying to cast doubt on the authority of the book by doing that, likely because it is a hard book and says hard things about people. Um, you know me, I'm, I'm a contrarian when it comes to that. I think the Bible exists to do that. Therefore, I don't doubt its authority because it, does, it accomplishes its purpose. Right? The Bible exists in order to instruct us about things that we would not know otherwise, that we would not do otherwise. And so when it does it, I am cheering. I'm like, thank God that He revealed that to us because we would never ever have come up with that on our own, right? That's the way we need to look at it. They, this is God's self-revelation about His Word, and when He says hard or difficult things to understand, we need to thank Him for it, rather than go, well, God wouldn't want me to know things. He wouldn't want me to help me understand things or comprehend things. In fact, Peter, in this book, acknowledges about Paul. I like, this is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I'll just give you, he says, Paul writes some difficult things to understand about Paul. Peter says that. You know, one of the things I hear complained about of expository preaching is, I don't understand it. Well, join the club. Peter started the club. He didn't understand easily everything that Paul wrote. It took some work so we're going to do the work together to do our best. Uh, but the reason they do that, the justification that they give for the authority problem that they want to create is that the vocabulary sounds different. You see the problem with that? No? Frankly, now we, didn't, we have a little less of a problem at the border because of we have multilingual individuals. They have more expansive vocabularies. And heck, you know, we just create a few extra words anytime we want on the border, don't we? 
Yes? It's cool. I like it. That's how language works. That's no problem. But you know, I sound different under certain contexts. Hypothetically, were I to ever get angry, y'all didn't laugh. That was a joke. Hypothetically, if I ever get angry, you will never hear somebody sound more Texan than I do. Right? It sounds a little different. Some people think that I speak in an academic way when I'm preaching. Y'all should hear me when I'm in a PhD class or writing a paper for one of those classes. It's different. And Peter's writing to a different audience here. He wrote to a very specific audience in 1 Peter. Remember, it was the choice aliens, the ones specifically who were dispersed all over Turkey, people in that locality, in that region, that were the designated recipients, the audience here. That is not the same. The audience is different here. And so we should expect that it sounds different, different vocabulary. It applies to more people, actually, more directly. In the original audience, we're the audience in a sense, right? But you do need to know who he's writing to in context. First Peter's, first Peter, excuse me, was much more specific than this. Members of particular churches in Turkey. But this one's different. It says, Simon Peter, a doulos, a slave, your Bible says bond servant because it was probably translated by an American. We don't like to say the word slave, do we? We don't. See, there's at least one truthful individual. You don't like to say slave. Anyone? People like to say alien. We clarified that, right? But I want you to notice the primacy, the, the priority of the reference. Simon Peter, slave. It's on his business card, so to speak. Slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. One who was sent to accomplish a purpose. A slave who was sent to accomplish a purpose. That's not an uncommon order. Sometimes Paul doesn't even include apostle in that. He just says slave. That was important to them, to understand that the authority of Christ in their lives was absolute. But he writes to somebody, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he writes to people, a, a category of people who have received something. They've been gifted something. It says, a faith. Now, understand, that is not the capacity to believe. You were born with that. No? You were born with the capacity to believe things, weren't you? Did you demand your parents' driver's license the day you were born? No, but you went home with them anyway. I did it twice, actually, on the day I was born. I went with home. When I was five, I was hit by a car. I don't know if I was technically in a coma, but I was comatose. For a long time, I woke up. I didn't know who the heck my parents were. 
I thought Joshua was the teddy bear sitting on the cabinet across the bed from me. My grandparents gave me that teddy bear so I would remember my own name. I went home with those people. I went home with those people. No idea who they were. I think they were my parents. I presume they were. I haven't had a DNA test, didn't take a paternity test, but I went home with them because I trusted them. You were born with the capacity to believe. So don't make that, that's not the way Scripture says when you receive a faith, when you receive a gift as a noun, what it's talking about is not the capacity to believe something, but the content, the substance of what it is that you believe, the doctrine, the truth, the content that you believe. You've received it. That's the category of people that he's writing to, people who have received a certain set of doctrines and applications, I will say, although I think applications are doctrines, how to apply the truth that you know. Those people. It's addressing all of them who have received that. Specifically, the same kind as ours, the apostles who were slaves of Christ, who, who submitted entirely to his authority in their life, in their relationship to him and in their vocation that he had given them, the same kind as theirs, who received it by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you ought to understand the difference in the reference when we say, when Paul says, different author, but when he says, your righteousness, what does he have to say about it? The nice way? Filthy rags. When he says the righteousness that is reckoned to you or imputed to you, it's not intrinsic to you, but it is credited to your account. You didn't produce it. You couldn't produce it. You will never produce it. But God grants it to you by grace through faith. That's now your identity, the righteousness of Christ. But when we say it is the righteousness of Christ... We're not talking about something imputed to him. It is his. He did produce it. It is who he is. It is the character of his behavior. It's truth. There's a difference here. That's what brought us the body of things that is the content of the faith that was gifted to us. That's important. We were not responsible for getting together and voting on what should be included. Right? Right? We received it as a body of doctrine. We received it as a truth. Jesus Christ and his righteousness is the definition of what we receive. We had nothing to do with that. We simply embrace it, receive it, believe it. It was not an organic, democratic process. It didn't arise, in my case, from the paganism of my 
Native American ancestors or my German ancestors. I probably had some Irish ones. I know I had some French ones. You know what kind of doctrine comes out of France on its own? Anyway. It's a good thing that it came from the righteousness of Christ that we received it as a body of doctrines, a body of truths. Let me give some titles here. The righteousness of our God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One, the Chosen One. But the Bible clearly teaches, and people are confused on this point, that Jesus is fully God. He didn't, was not elevated to that position because of his behavior. He is fully God intrinsically. It is his essence. The Messiah, the Savior of his people. In order to fulfill the prophecies of Scripture, he also had to be fully man. Right? We're going through these. I know it feels slow to my Sunday school class, but it's actually pretty rapid. It's not as rapid as the class I teach at the seminary level, but it's pretty fast. But we have been developing the references to the understanding of the expectation that Israel would have so that they could recognize the Messiah. It was different, right? There was only one man who could enter into the, the Holy of Holies and visually engage what we refer to as the Shekinah glory, the presence of God among the people, right? Just trust me. It's true. Come to Sunday school and we'll read all about it. Okay. But that presence was among Israel, but that was not the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to be the seed of the woman, going back to Genesis 3, the firstborn of God. Genesis 1.1, I would say. Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. There was an expectation that the Messiah would be a man. And it was God's intent that such a man would also be fully God in the person of Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, is our God and our Savior. He's worthy of those titles. But we need to refrain, right, from spiritualizing Old Testament prophecies. They need to be recognizable to the people to whom the prophecy was made, right? So, do you, do you understand? So, Eve, Eve is saved, justified. I would venture to guess. So if Eve says literally the seed of the woman, what is she expecting? What did she expect when her third son was born? <laughs> a man, a baby with a face and eyeballs, not a glorious presence in the Holy of Holies, only able to be encountered by one person once a year among the people. 
So we dare not simply say, God fulfilled that. When God tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation, he wouldn't recognize the church as the fulfillment of that promise. For instance, when David was told, you have a perpetual privilege to all your descendants after you that they will sit on your throne He would not have recognized any aspect of the church to fulfill that. He would recognize, even if most of the church in the world today does not recognize that there's a massive obstacle to the fulfillment of his promise in the form of a mosque sitting where his throne is supposed to be, excuse me, where the temple is supposed to be, but a mosque in that town over which he's supposed to be ruling somehow. We don't do that. It's the faith that he gave us, the God and Savior in the person of Jesus, the anointed one. That's the faith that we possess. That's whom he's addressing, which includes you and me, as far as I know, that we're believers here this morning. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, if you haven't believed in him for eternal life, Jesus' simple promise is, he who believes in me has eternal life. That is a very simple, immediate, present tense promise. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. So do that. But he's written to believers whose faith was received as a result of Christ's intrinsic righteousness as the anointed one, as God, as Savior. And he uses a very strange form, the optative mood. He says, grace and peace be increased to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the epinosis of God and of Jesus Christ, Jesus our Lord. Sorry. Grace and peace are intrinsically linked right in Scripture. I don't need to remind you of that. You do. You're required to receive grace in order to live a peaceful existence. But the wish here in that is that you would experience it in greater measure. There are lots of things that we want in greater measure. Yes? When your grocery bill has gone up two and a half times in the last couple of years. Gas prices, they took a little dive right now, but I think my son in Phoenix is paying five bucks a gallon, roughly. What do you want in greater abundance when that happens? Money. What the Bible wants for you is greater grace and peace. And those are not necessarily the same thing, despite what a lot of preachers in this town will tell you. Grace and peace. This town and every other town, it's not just us. I just know the ones here and a few other places. But the key to experiencing that, increasing grace and peace in our lives, is this, this epinosis of God. That's a, a very particular term, actually. Knowledge is something you can gain by observation. 
you can learn it on YouTube, amen? Yes, you can learn all sorts of things on YouTube, just knowledge, yeah? Yesterday, I'm a little, I'm very sore, actually, not just a little sore. I'm not going to lie anymore about how sore I am. Because I watched YouTube, and YouTube told me that I could get a 7-horsepower, 36-inch bar chainsaw and put it on a little frame and mill my own lumber like a dummy. I did it. Did it a lot. It works really well. I, I learned that knowledge. What YouTube didn't tell me is that when you're in your mid-40s, you can't really walk well the next day after you do that for a while. That's the epinosis. That's the transcendent kind of truth that we're talking about. Like, you can't learn it by observation. You've got to engage it. That's what I learned. You can't learn it the same way that you learn other things. The normal formula of the senses. Something that's experienced, something that's revealed to us. Right? We talked about that. Scripture, I'm thankful when Scripture tells us things that are difficult to understand because I wouldn't piece that together on my own. That's the nature of what we're talking about here. It has to be revealed. And there are mechanisms for which and by which God reveals those to you. Sometimes that is other people, which is why it's important that we not be doctrinally correct hermits, common enough in my experience. I can't hang out with those people because the, the line for heretic is way too close to my big toe. I've just got to be by myself because nobody else has acceptable doctrine. It needs to be revealed to us. He uses the Word. He uses people ministering to us. He uses people ministering to us who we may never have met through generations of teachers, through their writing. reveal to us the things that are necessary to experience grace and peace in greater measure. That's the key. Now you may, some of y'all may be as cynical as me. Don't admit to it in public. But when I tell you that Scripture wants for you, and thus I want for you, grace and peace in increasing measure on a daily basis, you say, show me the money. Grace and peace won't pay the bill on my Sam's credit card. No one's going to nod here. I understand. I do understand. Scripture understands. We covered this, I think, in 1 Peter. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He does care about the money problems. But they are temporary. They are lesser. wants grace and peace for you. 
This knowledge is key. By the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Epinosis is the key to your life experience, actually. The negative is true. Romans 1.28 says this, just as they did not see fit to recognize or acknowledge epinosis, God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. If you have an epinosis problem, you have a brain problem. You got a mind problem. On the positive end, it's the key to grace and peace. Philippians 1.9, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in epinosis. It's the key to loving relationships in the local body. About 20 other times, it's the key. It's the key to growing in grace here. It's the key to growing in grace throughout this book. Even as we engage some difficult topics, we're going to remember that that's what this is here for. The knowledge that we receive by revelation designed to increase grace and peace in our lives. And this is important to God and Jesus, our God and Savior. Verse 3 says this, that seeing that or that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the epinosis of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. To gift us, he's granted us this. Everything. All things. We have a, a saying, right, that you can't have it all, right? You can't have it all. In this context, Scripture disagrees. Scripture says you can have everything because God's already given it to you. Everything that you need for life and for godliness. And the Bible doesn't care how you feel about that truth. There you go again, Josh. Tromping on my feelings. Yes, I'm tromping on your feelings. Because a lot of days you ask me, you could have asked me multiple days this last week, do you have everything you need? No, I don't. I don't. For life and godliness? Nope, I'm feeling like punching some people in the face. I'm feeling like a Jesus throat punch is what some people need today. The Bible doesn't care about how I feel about God's provision of everything, all the things that I need for life and godliness. Doesn't care. You need to know that. It's a matter of epinosis. It's revealed to you. You will not observe it. Don't, you will not find in the epinosis YouTube channel. And if you do, turn it off. Right? YouTube is great for learning how to fix your lawnmower, your air conditioner, your chainsaw mill. You will not find epinosis most of the places there. But one of the things that we need to believe 
to have faith that's part of the doctrines that we have received because of the righteousness of Christ who has granted them to us, one of the primary ones in 2 Peter is that we have all the things that we need. Everything that we need for life and for godliness. And that was important enough to God to specifically direct His divine power to bring it about. He's gifted it to us, unless you forget how that happened, how it happened. It's through that epinosis knowledge. Who called us? A lot of people are confused, I think. Because a lot of people treat the whole Bible, we've been over this, right? Don't do this. The whole Bible is not about how to get you to heaven when you die. We call that the soteriological view of the purpose of Scripture. Sounds very fancy, doesn't it? That's the fancy way of saying people think that everything in the Bible is about how to get to heaven when you die. Soteriology, salvation. It isn't. Generally speaking, in the New Testament, when Scripture talks about our calling, our calling, that is a vocation, a job, a ministry. Same way we use it, right? People talk about people who become pastors. Oh, that's just your calling. It might be. But you know what didn't happen is my, my phone didn't ring. I didn't get a call from that. I didn't. Scripture teaches that every believer has a calling, a vocation, a ministry, a purpose. And Jesus Christ here is said to have called you by means of his glory and his excellence. In other words, you're supposed to visualize, to see the glory and the excellence of Christ, to inspire and motivate you to grow in grace, to be like him. That's not a gospel statement. That is not a statement of how you pass from being dead in your trespasses and sins and into life in Christ. That is simply what Jesus said. He who believes in me has eternal life. It is the means by which you engage in your calling and your vocation. And the motivation is the excellence and the glory of Christ. And to see what God has granted him, the Father has granted him because of the excellence with which he obeyed and submitted to the Father's will. So see, if you don't understand what is about going to heaven when you die and what isn't, you lack a lot of instruction about your life, how to live it, what God's expectations are, what his commands are, what he wants us to do. Peter, a very long sentence here. It's like one of my sentences, but I get marked off for these when I leave my sentences this long. We're not going to do that for Peter, though. We're going to let the Holy Spirit keep his sentence length, just how he wrote it. For by these 
He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, again, instrumentation here, by them you may become partners or partakers of the divine nature, species, kind, you would say almost, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So what does he mean for by these? He's talking about all of the things. Everything that he has granted to us. All the things. The promises. God has determined that in Christ, all of the promises that he made to you and to me are fulfilled in him. Now, I would say that all people of all times have all of their promises fulfilled in Christ, but that's not the focus of Second Peter. The other, one of the main problems that we do have in, in studying Scripture, and I run into a lot, is people claiming promises that don't belong to them. Right? No? Do you need to go build an ark so that you can be saved from the flood? How much rain have we had? Like 0.23 inches the whole year or something like that? Of course, that may not, that may have been exactly what they had in Noah's day, and it was less, it was zero. Focus on the promises that were given to you, but know that Christ has brought them to you. He has fulfilled them for you. And again, if they're not in the Bible, don't try to insert them. He has not promised you a certain price per square foot on your new house. To my knowledge, he didn't promise anybody that. Y'all are Bible scholars. Did I miss one? He fulfilled all of his promises. Every promise that made to us is kept and fulfilled and provided to us by Christ. That's good. Real good. If we could find a human being that could do 5% of that, we'd be doing great, wouldn't we? we consider that a pretty high success rate. And I bend myself backwards over and over and over again to try to keep my word, and I still fail. But Christ doesn't fail. He does not. That's really good. Even that is not the end game. Haven't you said that about your human relationships? I just wish they would do what they said they would do. Yes? That's all I want for them. That's all I want from them. That applies to lots and lots of relationships. In fact, that is where I begin to advise people who are having marital trouble. <laughs> There was a day where you stood before God, before men, and before your spouse, and promised to do certain things. Could we start by doing those? Could you start by doing those? That's the standard we have for human relationships. It is a foregone conclusion that Christ is going to do that. He has more. 
the point of the process of the epinosis that we're to receive, the faith that we have received of Christ keeping all of his promises to us is so that we become something by it. It's not simply so that we have a contract fulfilled in our favor, but that we become something, a partner, a partaker. Partaker is funny. Like, I grew up in church. We spoke Christianese. You speak Christianese, too. You just maybe speak a little different Christianese than I did growing up. But when we would belly up to the fried chicken table at the potluck, we would joke, we are about to partake together. What we meant is probably we were going to engage in sinful levels of gluttony when somebody should have called us to account for it. Partake sounds like you just drove through the Whataburger and got a number five what a size with fries. If you grew up speaking Christianese, doesn't it? Did I hurt anybody's feelings yet? All right. The number five is what I go to, but I haven't had one since like April. Sad face. It's all right. I'll live. It's not simply to consume. Because you could take partake that way to be a consumer to be a partner, a koinonos, a fellowshipper, we could say, is to be active. The, the promises that we've been given that are fulfilled in Christ, the epinosis, the faith that we have received, the epinosis of who God is, the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is to transform us into active partners, active participants that gives us participation in being like Christ. Like the divine nature, species. It doesn't change our species. Don't go that far. Mormonism kind of does that. Does do that. That's not what it's saying. But he said you become a partner, an active partner in exercising the prerogatives and the privileges of an entirely different species of divine person. That's literally what we were created to do, by the way. God created humanity in his image in order to exercise his delegated rulership and dominion on the world and in the earth. That was to be an extension of God's privilege and prerogative of dominion over his creation. It was supposed to be exercised through us. And in Christ that opportunity is restored. Ezekiel isn't in here, is he? Ezekiel, we could have a discussion. He had a run-in with some creation that wasn't under human dominion apparently a while back in the form of a little snake, a little dangerous snake. Dominion over creation is not something that we naturally exercise in our fallen state. I could give you a lot of examples. I mean, the other day, other day, I don't know, was it a week ago, 10 days ago, I went out in the backyard, I had one cow and nine goats loose. 
as distasteful as it sounds where I'm from, I literally had to become a goat roper. It's an insult where I'm from. Be a goat roper. The hard one was the cow. The cow outweighs me. He's a little Dexter steer. He probably got me by about 200 pounds now. Not full grown. That was exciting. Wasn't able to exercise dominion the way God created me to. I don't think Adam had to use a rope. Do you? Doesn't sound like it. But not just as servants. Not just as slaves, even though Peter has referred to himself that way in this time and in this place, from his writing point of view and from our point of view, we are servants who are also sons, but Christ has for us that we will be partakers and partners in the future. Because he keeps all his promises. We were created for it and reborn for it. As we grow in grace, we need to keep those things in mind. Because we're simply alive by virtue of Christ's gift to us. Earlier, maybe we should have talked about it more, <laughs> probably meant to, you, since you have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We can embrace the promises of Christ because he has made us alive. We're no longer dying. That's not our trajectory. Because of his gift of grace. Simply by grace through faith, trusting in him alone gives us the privilege this morning of remembering the sacrifice that made that possible. The propitiation is the big word the Bible uses for our sins, but not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. The gift, as well as the privilege. And the privilege is that we proclaim his death until he comes. So I'm going to ask that we do that together. I'll give us a few minutes uh, to spend in prayer or just time before the Lord and then I'll ask the men to come forward. Men, if you would, go ahead and come forward.
bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this prayer. sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King the body of our Savior Jesus Christ torn for you eat and For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you please stand with me? We'll dismiss with the last verse. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to See you next Sunday.